<laughs> you guys, uh, I have been really, truly blessed to have uh, strong, confident women uh, who have inspired me and encouraged me and challenged me all throughout my life. Um, some of you might know my mom. We've already talked about her a bit today. She is one of those women. Uh, she actually used to be the office administrator here at the church. Uh, and uh, she is legendary uh, in that position, not because she was good at the job, which I'm sure she was fine at. Uh, she is a legendary church office administrator because of how many times she threw her stapler at people. Um, my good friend Mike used to be a pastor here, and he to this day still tells his new church about the office admin at his last church and how she hit him in the head with a stapler from 20 yards away. And that was my mom, ladies and gentlemen. We have a problem here at Fort City. Uh, on Friday and Saturday nights, uh, people uh, like to get fast food and park in our parking lot, and then when they're finished, throw their garbage out their windows. And it's true, right? So every Sunday morning we come to church and there's McDonald's bags and there's all kinds of garbage always in the parking lot on Sunday mornings. And it's not a huge deal because normally whoever gets here first just does a quick walk and picks up all the garbage in the parking lot. Uh, this has been happening for years. It was happening when my mom was the office admin here. And one Sunday my mom had had enough. She went and she searched through the leftover garbage in the parking lot and she found a name and an address. <laughs> and if you're thinking my mom, the church secretary, the church office admin, wrote them a kindly worded letter to their house asking them not to litter, you're, you'd be wrong. She went to their house, she knocked on the door and handed them their garbage uh, through the door and told them to stop. I mean, she meant business. Um, you know, <laughs> she's a strong, courageous, confident woman, right? Like, we're, uh, uh, this is who has inspired me and challenged me my whole life. Uh, and you know, as many uh, of these stories I tell about my mom, these terribles, if you will, um, as many as I tell, the most important contribution my mom has made to me has been my faith. In our home, she stood as a tower of faith and I have faith, I am a Christian, I'm a Jesus follower to this day uh, because of my mom's influence and the way she uh, inspired the hope of Jesus in my heart. Now, she chased me around the house, beating me with a broom more than once, but she did ensure that I grew up loving Jesus. And today is Mother's Day, and we all know an influential or important or encouraging or challenging woman in our lives Today, I encourage you to take a moment at some point throughout the day, send them a text, send them a call, just let them know that you appreciate them and love them. Now, right now at Fort City, we're in the middle of a message series that we're calling Alive and Well with a strong focus on mental health. And at Fort City, we believe that God has made us physical, mental, and spiritual beings. And to be human is to understand that somehow we are a summary of these different parts, body, mind, and spirit. Uh, somehow beautifully entangled together in a way that we don't totally understand. And each of these parts of us, body, mind, and spirit, contribute to what it means to be human. 
Uh, you eat right, you exercise, you get enough sleep to take care of your body. You spend time in worship and prayer and serving to kind of take care of your soul. And you spend time with counselors or trusted friends uh, who, to take care of your mind, to help you work through your problems and your issues. And these different parts of what it means to be human, our body, our mind, and our spirit, uh, they're all independent of each other, but not wholly independent. The health of one part affects the health of the other too. That's why when you're feeling stressed, uh, sometimes taking a walk uh, helps you to feel better. Ian, I've got a bit of a ring happening. I don't know if I can talk louder or quieter, whichever makes it better. Talk louder? I could do that. <laughs> uh, it's why taking, when you're stressed, sometimes taking a walk will help you to feel a little bit better, right? It's why sometimes when you feel anxious, spending a few moments in quiet prayer can help you to feel better. It's why when you're depressed, right, when you're, when you're, when you're emotionally and your mind is depressed, your body is tired, right? You're exhausted. It, it, you're, you're, it's hard to get out of bed. The, the different parts, while they are independent of each other, are also dependent on each other. Your body, your mind, and your spirit are constantly influencing each other. One doesn't have total control over the other, but they do influence each other. And, and Doug and I, as we work through this mental health series, uh, we acknowledge that we are not psychologists and we are not counselors. We are not even mental health experts. There are people who are far better equipped uh, to help you with those sorts of things. And so we don't want you to think that we're advocating for only a spiritual approach to mental health. What we're advocating that is that a healthy spirit helps a healthy mind. A healthy spirit has a positive effect on the whole person. And so while we don't dive deep into the mental health aspects, because we shouldn't, we're not experts, we are able to look at how spiritual practices can help your overall mental health. We believe in the important work of counselors and psychologists and doctors and pharmaceutical therapies to help you deal with your mental health. We are pro that, but we are also pro Jesus and how he can walk through us through our struggles. We believe a healthy soul has a dramatically positive effect on the whole person that you are. Jesus said the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. And he said, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Jesus wants more for you. He wants you to experience life to the full. And he wants health and wholeness for your whole person. And today we're going to look at a story to kind of talk about this mental health side of things a little bit. A story that's included in three of the four Gospels. Now, if you're new to faith or if you don't know much about the Bible, the Gospels are the four books at the beginning of the New Testament. And basically, they're simply an account of the life of Jesus. They were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And Matthew, Mark, and John were contemporaries of Jesus. They knew Jesus. They spent a lot of time with Jesus. They were firsthand eyewitnesses to the stories that they wrote about. Luke took a different approach. Luke was contemporaries with the disciples and with Paul. And he took the approach of investigating 
thoroughly the life of Jesus and chose to write it in a chronological order so people would know who Jesus was, where he came from, and what he did. Luke was a, a, a physician and who I think was likely extremely, um, I think he was likely skeptical of the stories he heard about Jesus. He was a doctor. He knew uh, that people don't just get their sight back. He knew people who had been lame their whole lives don't just get up and walk. He knew these things about science and medicine. And so when he started to investigate the life of Jesus, I'm, I'm sure he was skeptical. And yet somehow through his investigation, he came to believe those stories. I want to tell one of Luke's stories right now. Uh, it's from Luke 8. Uh, it said, Then a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. And as Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. At the start of this story, we see Jesus arrive on the banks of this lakeside town, and he is met by a huge crowd of people who knew he was coming. Uh, they were expecting them. They had heard rumors of this Nazarene man uh, who was performing these miracles, and they wanted to see it for themselves. And in the middle of this chaos, Jairus, falls at the feet of Jesus, begging him to come to his home and to help his daughter. She's dying, he is desperate, and time is running out. Jairus was an important man, right? We read he, he was a leader of the local synagogue. Uh, he was well-respected in his town, and everyone knew who he was and paid him respect because of his position. And so it was a big deal to see Jairus fall at the feet of Jesus, begging him. Uh, Jesus agreed to go with Jairus to his home, and, and the crowd was thick. I want you to imagine, like, you know, you're at a concert, and the doors open, and you're trying to get the best seats. Like, we're talking, the place is packed. The crowd is huge. And in this crowd is a woman, and she is alone, and she is not important to anyone, and she, nobody knows her name. Like Jairus, she too is desperate for a touch from Jesus. Luke tells us a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding and she could find no cure. And I think we should stop here for a second just to analyze what, what this means in the context of uh, the first century world. Because there's some implications to this statement that we could uh, miss if we don't talk about them. This woman is suffering from menorrhagia, which is bleeding that lasts longer than seven days. And in her case, it's been 12 years. And aside from permanent abdominal pain, uh, she would have been suffering from something called anemia, which is where you don't have enough red blood vessels to supply oxygen to your body. And the side effects of that are terrible. You're short of breath all the time. You're constantly tired. Just simple things are hard for you to do. And, and so she's suffered 12 years of torture because of her condition. But it's even worse than that. For 12 years, this woman had been alienated and isolated from living a normal life because uh, by Jewish custom, anybody who was bleeding would be considered unclean. And anybody who was unclean, if you touched them or if, you if they touched uh, the door to your house or the cups on your table, if, if they were around, you too became unclean. 
And so for her whole, these past 12 years, nobody has wanted to go near her. Nobody has wanted to touch her. Nobody cared about her. She was isolated from her community. And she was alone. She lived her life day in and day out, suffering the physical toll of her condition, but also the emotional toll of the loneliness that it forced her to experience. And she was desperately alone and suffering and unseen. And like Jairus, she too heard the stories about this carpenter from Nazareth who had been doing miraculous thing, and she too was anxious for a healing touch from Jesus. But unlike Jairus, who approached Jesus with confidence, she was too full of shame to let Jesus even see her at all. And Luke tells us that coming up behind Jesus, she touched him on the fringe of his robe, and she snuck up on him. No doubt uh, hiding her face from the crowd so people wouldn't recognize who she was. She would have probably assumed that Jesus wouldn't want to help her. She was convinced that he wouldn't want to touch her. She knew, this, she knew her condition, what it would mean for Jesus to touch her, and so she snuck up on him. And using the sea of bodies and limbs as camouflage, she reaches out towards Jesus and just touches the dirty hem of his robe. Jesus stops, and he turns around. Surely to the frustration of Jairus, right? He's, his daughter is dying and they are in a rush. Time is not on their side. Jesus stops in his tracks and he turns around. And he asks, who touched me? Who touched me? And Jesus thinks, or Jesus, Peter, who's with Jesus, thinks Jesus is out to lunch here. Jesus, look at this crowd. Everyone's touching you. We're literally forcing our way through this crowd. He said, Master, the whole crowd is pressing up against you. And Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out of me. Jesus wanted to know who it was that touched him. He wanted to see their face. He wanted to know why. And the woman at this point, she knows she can stay hidden no longer. And she began to tremble and fear, and she fell on her knees before Jesus, her, her face into the ground. She was, her shame was overwhelming. Her humiliation was extreme. Would he rebuke her? Would he be angry with her? Would he be so offended by her condition, about what she had, been, what she had just done to him? No. And with a heart full of compassion and eyes full of grace, he looks down on her and he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Daughter. For 12 years, she has been nobody's daughter, nobody's family, nobody's friend. She had been rejected and she had hidden herself away. But Jesus calls her daughter. You are mine. You are seen, and you are loved. Her condition doesn't bother him. The taboo of being unclean doesn't affect him. The shame that has dominated her thoughts doesn't stop him. She was his, and he was hers. And I, I read this story, 
And immediately I realized that so often our shame keeps us hidden. We think if people really knew the truth about me, they wouldn't like me. If people really knew my struggles, they would avoid me. And so we hide our truth. Our shame keeps us hidden away. No one will understand me. No one will understand my depression. No one will understand why I struggle with suicidal thoughts. No one will understand why I hate myself. No one will understand why I just can't get out of bed and why I can't go to work. Nobody's going to understand that. And so we suffer alone, hiding our face from those around us. The more convinced we become, the more we decide that we are unworthy, unlovable, and untouchable. And if that's you this morning, I want you to hear something very important. He sees you. He sees you. He knows you. He knows your pain. He knows your suffering. And he wants to suffer it with you. And even though he might be rushing off to help Jarius and his daughter and time is not on his hands, he will stop in his tracks and turn towards you and give you the affection and the love and the approval that you need. He is not too busy for you to call you daughter, to call you son. In his book, Pathways to the King, Rob uh, Rob Reamer says this, until we experience the reality of our identity in Christ as children of God, we will never realize the potential of our destiny in Christ. You are a child of God. You are not the sum of all of your mistakes. You are not a failure because you have failed. You are not worthless. You are a child of the Most High. On Thursday, uh, we had our very first Encountering God class here in this room. We had 23 people show up. It was a great start to the eight-week class. Uh, if you're interested, it's not too late. You can still come. They're on Wednesdays, uh, Wednesdays not Thursdays. Uh, but on, on this, this week, I laughed uh, in the group and shared about uh, how I feel about uh, the Apostle John. John wrote the book of John. John was one of Jesus' closest friends. And I always laugh because several times throughout John's account of the life of Jesus, John writes into the story, uh, he calls himself the one that Jesus loved. And so he'll be like, you know, he'll write like, oh, Peter was there and Mark was there and the one who Jesus loved was there, right? Like, who is this guy? Like, so thirsty, John. And he, he's actually like... I've always felt like, John, what? It, come on, man. That's a bad look. And I, I've totally flipped how I look at John. God has changed, totally flipped the way I understand why he, do, why he did that. I get it now. I, John was convinced that his friend Jesus loved him so much that that was a way he began to describe himself. His friend Jesus loved him so much and he knew it so deeply that the love of Jesus became a core part of his identity. It became a core part of the way he understood himself. I am John, the one that Jesus loves. I am now jealous of John. 
I wish, I, I, I work towards understanding the way God loves me every day. And more and more, I begin to understand it. And I hope one day soon that I'll be able to say, I am Lucas, the one that Jesus loves. And quite a few years back, uh, I was uh, still a firefighter, and uh, Doug helped me to become accredited as a pastor. Uh, I had zero formal education uh, as a pastor. Uh, you may not know this. I also still have zero formal education <laughs> as a pastor, so uh, joke's on you. Uh, but, but Doug saw something in me, something he wanted to grow, and so he began working with me. And, and while I was still working full-time somewhere else, uh, Doug uh, tur turned me into a part-time worship pastor here at the church. And we're part of a denomination called the Alliance uh, in Canada. We have 400 churches in Canada. We have thousands more worldwide. Uh, but once a year in our district of the Alliance, all the different new pastors in our district gather together in Sylvan Lake for what they call a new workers retreat. It's a chance for all the new pastors to gather together and to learn about our denomination, to meet each other and, and spend time in worship and prayer and together, that sort of thing. It's, it's like an orientation uh, weekend. And uh, on the first night uh, of this new workers retreat that I went to, remember I'm no formal education, I'm actually full-time somewhere else, I'm not full-time at a church. Um, on the first night of this icebreaker, they gave each person each pastor there, a name tag with a Bible uh, a book on it, a book of the Bible on it. And I got Obadiah, which at the time I didn't know was a book of the Bible. And, uh, and then they gave these instructions as this icebreaker to meet each other. They're like, okay, now go, go and look at the names of the books of Bibles on all these people and organize, you, uh, organize yourselves into the different groupings of Scripture. And so uh, the law books and the minor prophets and the major prophets and the epistles and I'm like, what's an epistle? <laughs> I, I had no idea. And all, everyone else you know, knew exactly. And they were organizing in the groups. And it turns out Obadiah is one of the minor prophets. I know that now. But then I had no idea. And instantly I felt, began to feel like an outsider. Right? I felt like I didn't belong. And, and like I was an imposter. Right? All these people, they belong here. But me? I don't belong here. All these pastors had been to seminary. They had been to Bible college, and I was just a dumb firefighter. And over the next couple of days, a feeling in me began to grow and grow. And it was very an uncomfortable weekend for me. And then on the third day, we were divided into groups of three people. There's about 50 of us there, and we divided into groups of three and uh, the goal was, the instructions were, go off in the building and find somewhere uh, to sit together and pray. And each of you ask God to speak to you an encouragement or a challenge or a word of wisdom for the other people in your group of three. And so uh, the groups were assigned to us. And my group included uh, the new executive pastor at the largest church in Alberta and a former Bible school professor who was now the church, uh, the lead pastor at the largest church in Red Deer, and me. <laughs> Obviously, out of my depth, right? I, instantly, I felt incredibly uncomfortable. The same thing was repeating itself. This shame cycle, this I don't belong, I'm an imposter going through my head. 
And so I sat with them and we prayed for a while. And uh, Ben Elliott is his name, the former professor, former missionary, now lead pastor, Red Deer Alliance Church. He looked at me and he said, Lucas, I think God has shared something for me for you. And it's really simple and I, 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 there's not a lot to it, but I, I just want to share it with you. I believe it's, it's for you in this moment. And he looked at me and he said two words. And he said, you belong. There was no way for, for him to know. I, I put on a good show. Nobody knew that I did not feel like I belonged. I did my best to fit in. He, there's no way for him to have known that I was feeling like an imposter. And he didn't say anything else. That was it. The two words. You belong. There is power when God shares the truth about who you are in his eyes. Now, in a moment, we're going to take communion together, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up now. They're going to lead us through that uh, process. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to tell you just a quick last story before we move on. Uh, it's a story from a long time ago. It's thousands and thousands of years old. It was written down by a man named Samuel about a man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Say that three times fast, right? Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, who was the son of Saul. And Saul was the one who tried to kill David before David became king. So Saul, Saul tried to murder David before David ever became king. This is this family. So there's Saul, there's Jonathan, and then Mephibosheth, Jeff. Call him Mr. M from now. Mephibosheth had lost the use of his legs when he was very young in a tragic accident. And there's culturally something important about that that we may not realize in this day and age is that in this period of history, disabled people were not treated well. They brought shame to their families and they were often hidden and abused and neglected because of the shame that they brought their families. And additionally, in this period of history, it was not uncommon for kings to kill all the descendants of the previous king and to, to, to wash out any descent that might exist. And so by rights, King David should have had Mephibosheth killed. And after he had been king for many years, David asked if any of Saul's descendants were still alive. And Mephibosheth was the only one. And so David sent for him and he came to the courtroom and in fear for his life, he surely thought he was about to be killed. That is exactly what he was expecting. That is exactly what everybody in the room was expecting. And David reached down to him and told him to not be afraid. And David made him a promise that for the rest of his life, he would have a seat at his banquet table. That he belonged at his table. That no matter his past, no matter the thoughts of people against him, no matter how he felt about himself, he would always have a seat at the table of the king. And Samuel tells us, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons for the rest of his life. Today, 
here at the front, we have set a table. It's the communion table. And it's a place where Jesus has promised to meet each one of us. A place where you belong like sons and daughters of the King. Until we experience the reality of our identity in Christ as children of God, we will never realize the potential of our destiny in Christ. This is your destiny. You are a child of God. You are a son and daughter of the King. And you belong at the King's table. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you see us. I thank you that you know us. And all the parts we try to hide from you and try to hide from each other, the parts that bring us so much shame that we box up and hide away. That Jesus, you see us. And that there is no reason for us to hide our face from you that you are not too busy for us, that we have not done too many wrong things, that we're not too broken, too lost, or too far gone. And Jesus, I pray that today as we partake in this communion moment together and as we worship you together and as we go out into our weeks that we would be reminded and convinced and, and, and that we would like John be so confident that you love us that we will call ourselves children of God sons and daughters of the Most High, that we would discover anew and afresh our identity as children of God and discover the destiny that you have in store for us. Amen. Paul said this in Ephesians 1 about God. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. That is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. This morning there was a seat for you at the table of the king, and that's exactly how he wants it, and it brings him great pleasure to see you sitting at it. Now, we're going to take a few moments and lead you through some worship together. When you feel ready, it can be right away, or you can take a few moments. You can come up to the front, grab a cracker and juice, and you can head off to your seat or off to the side, and you can take communion whenever you're ready. We won't do it all together. We'll take it when you're ready. And so uh, I just encourage you to take this moment. Go to Jesus. Jesus promises to meet us at the table. He's invited us there. So let's do that together. And if any of you would like prayer in these moments, we do have a prayer team. They'll be off to the side of the stage here, and you can go to them. They'd love to pray for you. So if you'd like, if you can, please stand with us now as we worship and take communion together.